Welcome to the Educators Blueprint Podcast. Thank you for joining us as we engage in meaningful conversations on topics currently impacting our school systems, behavior, and instructional practices. From the classroom to the boardroom, we welcome you to unpack, reflect, and learn with us. Now here's your hosts. Hi, everyone. We are so glad you are joining us today for the Educators Blueprint. My name is Jamie Greasehaver, and I'm here with my co-host, Lisa Powers. Hey, Lisa. Good morning. We're excited to have Dr. Brandy Simonson today from the Center on PBIS, and she will continue our series on classroom, and we're excited to learn a little bit about her and her experiences in education. Let's jump in. So we're excited to have Brandy with us today. Before we get started, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, you as a person and your experiences in education, whatever you're comfortable sharing? Sure. So my current role is that I am a professor at UConn and in that role, I have two of my favorite things. One of them is I get to co-direct the National Center on PBIS and the other is that I get to co-lead the National Integrated MTSS Research Network. So that's kind of who I am now. Um, but how I got there and a little bit more about me is that I did some of my initial work at University of Oregon. I got there as a grad student right when the first National Center was funded. So I like to claim that it's because I showed up that they got funded. Of course, <laughs> I have nothing to do with it. Um, but it was really a fun time to be a student and be learning from George and Rob and kind of understand a little bit more about what it meant to be positive and proactive. That was, that was not part of my initial teacher training. So it was something I was very hungry for. And after finishing grad school, I ended up going into the field and working in a setting that served kids with pretty intense behavioral needs. It was a non-public school in California and kids got there because they had struggled so mightily with behavioral challenges that they had bounced out of their school-based, their district-based and their county-based programming. And so when I got there, the school was in a pretty significant state of crisis and we used PBIS to pull ourselves out of it. And so that experience just cemented for me kind of the love of things I had learned in a classroom and it made me want to be an advocate and do this work forever. So it kind of informed the, the role I'm in right now, where I get to now disseminate and advocate for this work on a bigger scale. Interesting journey. So our, our audience can't see you, but they would never guess you've been doing this this long at the beginning of PBIS and been in the field that many years. <laughs> So. That is very kind. And I will send a picture that was from like 10 years ago. So it'll make it even harder for them to like, you go. They'll never know. <laughs> exactly. So how did you get from the West Coast to the East Coast? You know, I was working in that school and I loved it. I loved the students. I loved the staff, but I started feeling like there was a little bit that was missing because I'm a super research geek. And I just had a hard time taking time away from my work with kids to try and do that while I was in the school setting. And so when I reached out to George Sagai, he let me know that I should look at a position at UConn. And so I traveled to UConn because he was coming. So in 2005, we both got here and we got to build some of the programming at UConn from the ground up. I was the very young person who got to learn from him and he was kind of grooming the next person to be able to step into some of that at UConn. Okay. So my parents blame him because they're in California. They blame him for bringing me to the East Coast. And I thank him for bringing me to the East Coast. It's been awesome. Oh, wonderful. Wonderful. 
So to kind of get us started and get us grounded, this last the last five to six episodes have been focused on the classroom setting. And we've heard from different practitioners and researchers in the field, what does it look like to put best practices in place in the classroom? Today, we're really gonna extend it a little bit more and talk about the system and tools to help districts and schools ensure these best practices are in place and they're sustained over time. So our first question is really around, you talked about your connection to the Center on PBS and the work that's happening there. We know there are many tools and briefs. Talk a little bit about some of the tools around effective classroom practices, and then we'll talk more specifically about some of them. So as a center, this has been work that we've talked about kind of loosely from the very beginning of the center, classroom had always been a priority. And so there have been across the decades, really effective resources and tools, but they were often kind of small in nature. And so starting five, 10 years ago, we had a work group that formed to really think about what are those practices that we wanna help teachers install and focus on because we can't do all the things. (laughs) And then connected to those practices, as you were saying, how do we help school teams, district teams, think about organizing the systems to support. So there's a systems guide that accompanies one of the practice guides that we're gonna talk about in a minute. And then there's also a data guide because a lot of the work that we do at school-wide PBIS or at district-wide doesn't always get sensitive enough to push into some of the challenges that teachers experience in a classroom. So we wanted to just layer some additional supports into the data piece for school districts and for schools to think about how to support educators. So kind of all of those pieces are represented in guidance. Perfect. We will connect those three documents in the show notes. So if anyone's interested, they could go directly to those documents. Now spend a few minutes, if you don't mind, talking about the purpose of supporting and responding to behavior evidence-based classroom strategies for teachers, that document tool in particular. Yeah, so that was a resource that we were approached by the Office of Special Education Programs and colleagues that we've had for years supporting the center. And they were about to put out guidance for school administrators that said, kind of in light of special education, there had been a practice of kind of thinking about the suspension rules as like 10 free days that we could suspend Mm -hmm. kids with disabilities for up to 10 free days before we had to do any kind of further programming. And they really wanted to do a reset on that and have administrators and educators think about how we can set all students up for success. And so initially they were kind of thinking about some guidance around how do teachers respond when kids are struggling with behavior. And we had a really nice collaboration with them to think about, well, let's not just do the response. (laughs) Let's Mm -hmm. think about on the proactive (laughs) side, how do we set kids up? So the first version of that document came out from the Office of Special Education Programs on the 40th birthday of the Individuals with Disabilities Mm. Education Act. It was released at the White House, which was kind of cool. We have a nice picture of that with like the birthday cake for IDEA. Oh, fun. And that guidance document we were super excited about because it made the practices that we had talked about, it made them accessible. So it included some decision-making guidance. It included examples and non-examples of what the practices do and shouldn't look like. And then it also linked people to other resources. So if they wanted to do a deep dive, they could go well beyond that document. And we've recently updated it. So it's now called this supporting and responding to students' social, emotional, and behavioral needs. So that was just released on our website. And that's going to be one that we hope gets a lot of traction. 
it keeps the same kind of structure and opportunity to connect outside the guide with other resources, but it centers a little bit more of the practice work and lessons we've learned over the last, you know, five, six, seven years around centering the work in equity, emphasizing relationships and really thinking about fidelity. So those pieces come through the, this revision a little bit more strongly than they did in the first one. Perfect. If you were to say, what is the top tip from the new document and the revised document? What's something that is super important to you or that you've seen um, schools and teams find very valuable? You know, I think it's hard sometimes to think about like the top practice, but for the top tip idea, I think intentionality is probably the biggest thing I end up talking with folks about is as teachers, we know most of these practices, they're not like new, different rocket science, where I think we often struggle is we're doing all the things all the time. Mm -hmm. So in the moment we've, when you have like 37 things on your plate, how do you still prioritize making a connection with a kid or getting the kid engaged or having a positive interaction? And so I think intentionality becomes really critical. And by that, I mean, focusing on the practice, making a plan to do the practice, setting a goal around the practice, monitoring your use of the practice, and then coming back. So not intentionality in an abstract way, but like actually having a plan and taking data to make sure you're executing the plan. Nice, nice. That's super important. I love that word intentionality. When I think about a word for a year and I appreciate what you're saying is that the things that we want success in, we have to put intention around love that. So another super accessible, super comprehensive brief that you guys put out recently was MTSS in the classroom in back in November. And so how is that tool organized and like, how do teachers use it? Just talk a little bit about that. Yeah, there is a lot of information in that tool and we hope it's still pretty user-friendly and accessible because it's organized in a figure and in tables. Um, But it is one that if you're a brand new teacher, it might not be your starting place. You might want to grab someone who knows a little bit more to walk through it with you or to help you prioritize. But it really takes the idea that there are these foundational practices that show up in every tier. And so if we think about setting our practices up to be around the ideas of prevention, So how do we set students and ourselves up for success from the beginning, really around teaching? So how do we think about teaching social, emotional, behavioral skills in the context of academic instruction? And then how do we respond in a way that sets students up for success going forward, both with positive specific feedback, so praise and kind of error corrections that are instructional in focus and so set kids up for success in the future. And then the fourth component we talked about across the the tiers of the triangle is how to then use data to help you decide when you need to double down on tier one, when you might've identified a student for whom you need to further intensify. So it organizes kind of tables around those key practices for each tier. So it talks about what they look like in tier one. And what I like about it also, I'm obviously biased, (laughs) but it also tries to illustrate that tier one is not one size fits all. You do this and if it doesn't work, you have a kid who needs tier two. It talks about tier one as a really robust foundation that includes differentiation. So good tier one, good teaching is core practice and differentiated practice. And when we do that really well, most students, even kids who have more intensive needs are going to be successful with tier one support. The differentiation was very explicit, tangible, and helped you think outside of the traditional lane that we think about tier one. I thought it was really powerful. 
You know, it's interesting as I was talking with some districts to local to me, that was one of the conversations we were having both for academics and for social emotional and behavioral skills is there's sometimes a misrule of tier one that like, if it doesn't work, you go on and you ask the specialist Yeah. as opposed to as a teacher, we have a lot of strengths and skills where we can try it in a way that we think is going to set kids up for success. And then we use our data to beef that up. Mm-hmm. So I think differentiation in tier one is potentially one of the bigger misrules and one of those that we can continue to come back to. So you describe and define this tool document as um, robust and comprehensive. How would you, how have you seen, or would you suggest administrators and teachers, maybe not the brand new teachers, but administrators and teams, maybe, how would you suggest they use the tool? Yeah, great question. So I just this week was walking through it for pre-service and I was, I'm going to have them read it just so that they have kind of the full piece in their heads. But as pre-service teachers, we're primarily setting them up to think about tier one. And so we walked through and we took, well, I took the, t- the rows of the table that are specific to tier one. And I actually use the graphic more than all the details on the table mm. and just highlighted some of the big ideas of what it looks like to prevent, teach and respond in tier one. And then for each of those small bullet points, kind of like the tables do in writing, I pulled in pictures of examples and non-examples and resources. So try to kind of anchor those pieces to the big idea. If I was doing that as a school-based administrator, I might pick one of those things to put into a faculty meeting or ask grade level teams to have like a five minute conversation. Cause I do think if you try and do everything at once, it makes it hard to be intentional. Mm-hmm. But if you were to focus on like, how do I make sure I connect with my kids as they enter the room? So greeting at the door, that's something we can all do. We can practice for a couple of weeks and then we can layer in the next skill. Mm-hmm. So as an administrator, I would do small doses in a pre-service class, we're kind of trying to get the concepts built, but really make them small, digestible, and doable. What would you say as a district, how might they use the, the, the concepts? Yeah, I, to me, I think at a district level, some of the main messages would be really effective to communicate, including the one we already talked about, where tier one really is supposed to be robust and differentiated. And so I would love to see districts create some local resources based on this that fit their local context and culture. They could have staff have access to the guide, but they could also put it in their back pocket and just use their own way to share examples and non-examples of what it looks like. I'm going to forget the name of the district, but we, I just this week saw an amazing example of a district who had taken the old supporting and responding and done just that. They put it in their own language, their own words, the concepts were aligned. So they reflected evidence-based practice, but it was so much better than if they had just tried to make a national resource fit, they really contextualized it for themselves. And so I think that's a lot to ask a school to do, but at the district level, that's something they can do. Yeah. And it kind of gets us all using the same language and in the same community. I saw that video as well. We'll link it in the show notes. They did a fantastic job. Yeah. Yeah. What are the guiding principles and practices referenced in the document that you feel are, and why do you feel they're important? Yeah, I think the document tries to make kind of simple what we know can be complicated. So the the anchoring back to preventing and teaching and responding, which echoes a little bit some of the work that folks in Florida and other places Mm -hmm. have done on prevent, teach, and reinforce. It tries to anchor kind of the basic practices to those concepts. What I like about that is I feel like as an educator, 
if I get like a toolbox or like a recipe card for how to implement something, there's always times that it's not going to work in my classroom for me, for a specific kid. But if I kind of understand the concept of what I'm trying to do, and I have a, a range of examples I've seen, I'm better positioned to be able to think about how to implement that practice in a way that makes sense for me as a teacher, for my classroom of students, and for an individual kid. So I hope we've set it up to kind of teach big ideas that then folks can adapt and generalize into their own context. Mm -hmm. I want to go back for one second, just because when we were talking about how a district can use it, I was kind of thinking more specifically about that resource. But I think also, and we've talked about this already, at the district level, it's really critical that they're thinking about those training and coaching supports. So not just anchoring something to one resource, but really thinking about how that resource fits into their overall training, coaching, and kind of overall system of support for educators. Thanks. That's, that's pretty important. Brandy, overall, what have you found to be the most impactful component within the brief and why do you think that is? So for the MTSS brief, I feel a little bit like it's too soon to know because it only came out recently and we haven't embedded it yet in a lot of our trainings. What I hope it will do, and I think time will tell, is I hope it will have teachers think about what it does look like for them to implement a full continuum within their classroom. I think the importance of school-wide, kind of the school-wide framework, school-wide tiered support is 100% critical. But I think in a classroom, sometimes it creates a little bit of a feeling that tier two or tier three becomes someone else's job. And I think one of the things we know that's so important is that all of us, whether we are a general educator in elementary school, whether we're a content specific educator in a high school, whether we're a special educator, like our job is to teach all of our kids. Mm-hmm. And so really feeling empowered to be able to do all of that, not on your own, but with support mm-hmm. is one of the messages I hope comes out of that document is never to feel isolated. And like, you know, you're doing all of this on your own. But with the right supports, we should be able to support students back in their classrooms for the most part. So it's an invitation to just reflect on individual practice and find the ways in which it it fits within within what you're already doing for kids. So if you were going to engage our listeners, what advice would you give regarding this whole big topic? I guess we're going back to that tip. (laughs) We want another tip from you, Brandy. You know, I think, I think if I'm in a classroom right now, everything feels so Mm. hard. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like in addition to being intentional, I feel like it's celebrating the small things, right? It's seeing where there's a success and finding joy in that for yourself, but also for your students. And if I'm an administrator, I'm thinking about how to help my teachers do that. Like, how do I acknowledge, of course, that we're in hard moments right now. And some of those will eventually go away and some of them will persist. Mm -hmm. So how do I acknowledge that there's significant challenge while also helping kind of set folks up for success and celebrating small successes? So yeah, to me, I feel like it's all about being intentional and then celebrating the baby steps toward getting there. High five to that. Happy dancing and amen. (laughs) We need it all right now. Right? (laughs) Yes. Are there any additional resources you might suggest? You know, in the supporting and responding to students' social emotional behavioral needs in that guide, there are so many. (laughs) 
And I think that could be overwhelming. I think a few of the resources that I kept finding myself going back to as we were preparing that guide came out of our equity work group. So one is the cultural responsiveness field guide, which was updated within the last year. And that just has amazing recommendations and learning for educators. And so I think that's one that if folks haven't read, it's much more directed at coaches and teams, but I think even as as an individual, I think you can get content out of it and ideas and suggestions and further kind of growth and learning on, on our part. And then there was another resource also from that same work group that I kept coming back to, which was the one around talking about race, racism, and critical events. I might have the title slightly off. Um, And that one really gave actionable resources for teachers when something comes up that's hard, how do they talk about it? My, I'm a mom and I was, had my kids fully remote all last year and was watching just an amazingly brilliant teacher struggle on days after something really challenging had happened, not because she didn't want to talk about it, but because she didn't have the resources to talk about it effectively. And so I've just been thinking about how, as we continue to see challenges come up, those actionable resources that would give me as a teacher, a lesson plan to work Mm -hmm. from would be really impactful. So to me, those were the two that throughout the, our guide, I kept referencing because they were just they provided additional context and actionable things that folks could do like tomorrow to make kids' lives better. Well, thanks for that. Yeah, this is a deep dive. Lots of resources, <laughs> a lot of connections to a lot of other resources, but you've also simplified us, simplified it for us to keep it sort of the big picture in mind as folks go to, to you know, explore and use these resources within their classrooms, schools, and districts. So we thank you for your time today. It's been wonderful chatting with you. We could go on and on and on and on. (laughs) Uh, We've got a big idea to kind of get us started and we give you the final word. I will just say thank you for having me and thanks for folks who actually made it through listening because I think that's always hard to kind of stay engaged for this long. But I do think just to end on a big picture, the messages around intentionality and celebrating small successes. I mean, something as small as remembering to greet your kids as they come into the classroom makes a huge difference and is something that we can think about doing tomorrow to make lives different for kids. So thank you. Jamie, what a great conversation with Brandy. She's phenomenal. Again, we could listen. We wish we had recorded the after party conversation because that was super fun as well. I think we might want to get permission for that at some point to have outtakes. <laughs> yes. Like love it. What's really going on? So what are what is a takeaway that is sitting with you right now? There were many. I think what bubbled to the top for me was her permission just as a, just a lead researcher and producer of all these amazing briefs to break it down, be very intentional about the practices you want to move forward and just find ways to connect with kids and the rest of it will come together. And the other thing was as an author of so many resources, I really appreciated that she said, you need to make it contextually relevant to your environment. So take the framework, take the big ideas, the critical features, but make it make sense in your world, which I thought was a really cool piece of advice from someone who has created so many things. What about you? So connected to your keeping it practical, I also found value in 
her recommendation to work as a team collaboratively with others, that you don't have to do this alone if you're a new teacher or uh, a school that we need each other to work through these documents together in a professional learning community or grade level team or a school team or a district team. We invite you to subscribe to the Educator's Blueprint and provide us with feedback. Please share with colleagues and friends. If you have additional ideas for a series, feel free to tweet us. Our handle is educblueprint and check out the show notes for all the great resources Brandy shared. And next week, we're going to continue the classroom conversation with another dynamic guest. Until then, we invite you to take some time for tea. Thanks for listening. Educators Blueprint Podcast team would like to say thanks to our guests today in addition to our music composer, Austin Gross, our graphic designer, Evan Courtney from Creative Courtney, the NU Center team for school-wide positive behavior supports, and me, Grace Linguffy, your MC. Thanks again for listening. Blueprint. 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 Okay, try it again. <sighs> take three. It's actually take four, Mom. Okay, go. <laughs> <sighs> okay. I love you. Mwah. <laughs>